How many of you grew up going to something like maybe vacation Bible school or Sunday school and they had the flannel board action going on? You know what I'm and, and do you remember the pastel Jesus on the hillside surrounded by little children with pink faces? It's actually a common view of God in our day. Not that God is flannel, but that this kind of, this kind of um, soft pastel God. Um, it, it, it's not only on the flannel boards of Sunday school and vacation Bible school. We also get this in um, lots of the literature and the movies that come around. Elizabeth Gilbert, are any of you familiar? She had this best-selling uh, memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, Julia Roberts and Javier Bardem starred in a movie of the book. Star Wars, Avatar. There's a lot of these movies where you get this sense that God is this very safe entity. That he, um, in some expressions, he's the life force in everything. It's actually, I think, the current kind of darling God of Hollywood. And, and the interesting thing about this God and the cute flannel board God is that very often this God demands nothing. And he lets us call the shots. He's like a book on the shelf. He's there if you need him. He's there if you want him. But he will not pursue you. There's no danger that at any time heaven and earth should flee from his presence. This God is an impersonal pastel. He's this force. He's a subjective God of beauty and truth. He's this formless kind of energy that's flowing through us. He's a vast power inside of us that we can tap into when we want to. So this passage that Jason read to us um, doesn't really square with that. If you have your Bible, look at this passage. Jason read, it's in Malachi. It's actually the last book of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament begins. If you need to use your table of contents, I encourage you to do that. What I want to do is walk through this passage. And look, whether you agree with the view of God presented in Malachi or not, I want us to at least have the kind of intellectual honesty to allow Malachi to say what he's saying and to allow the Christian view of God to be held up. And we'll see that it's actually very different from this safe, impersonal force. It's very different from this God who demands nothing that we often encounter today. Look in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So what we're reading is a 2,500 year old piece of writing. And it's, it's a preacher by the name of Malachi. And he's an Israelite, and this is a part of one of his sermons to his fellow Israelites. And in this passage, he accuses them of something. He accuses them of doing something wrong, and then they respond and say, What? Us? We haven't done anything wrong. What are you talking about? And so then he marshals the evidence 
of what he's claiming they've done wrong. So let's look more closely. That first phrase, you have wearied the Lord with your words. God's tired of you. He's tired of the stuff you're saying. Now, again, this is not the kind of taking or leaving kind, leaving kind of God. This is not the emotionless God. This is not the God of grace only. This is a God that's tired of something. This sounds very much like some of you have heard your own parents say, I'm tired of blah, blah, blah. I'm tired of hearing you. I'm tired of seeing you. X, X, Y, I mean, seeing you do this. I didn't mean like that. In general, looking at you. Well, maybe some of you. I've never heard that from my parents. They're always pleased to look at me. Now, what's interesting here is that there are parts of the Bible that says we need to be persistent with our prayers and we need to knock on heaven's door until God lives up to his promises. There are parts of the Bible that tells us to pray like nagging people and just wear God out with our prayers. That is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about reminding God of his promises and giving him no rest until he keeps them. Malachi, the preacher, is talking about a group of people who are complaining endlessly. The people of Israel were complaining about God with a really irreverent attitude. And that's what Malachi is talking about. They were saying that God had not lived up to his promises. They were saying that they deserved better from God. And they were saying it in a very disrespectful way. Now, it's interesting for the Bible to describe God as weary. We're not used to looking in the face of God and seeing God look back at us and saying, you know what, I'm really tired of this. That's not the God that we're accustomed to either in the church or outside of the church. We run so quickly to the cross inside of the church. We run so quickly to grace inside of the church that we forget about this part of God. The picture here is that God is the creator of the ends of the earth and he does not grow weary from all that he does. But he does get tired of unbelief and persistent sin. Now, next we have this amazed response from the people. What are you talking about? How have we gotten on God's nerves? I mean, what about us could really bother God? See, they were so certain that the accusation was false, that God is not offended by them. They said, more evidence, please. This can't be true. So Malachi mentions two complaints that the people have been making about God in a disrespectful way that has provoked God. By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now clearly, Malachi is just saying something that causes the people he's talking to to know about a whole world of discourse that's been going on. He's not saying if you ever utter these particular words. He's referencing something they've been doing and this line lets them know what he's talking about. See, the first piece of evidence that Malachi presents is, is this complaint the Israelites have been making about God. They've been claiming that God is unrighteous. Now, what did it mean for an Israelite to claim that God was unrighteous? They saw in their society how people who did not love God 
did not honor God, were not loyal to God and his kingdom and his values, they saw how these people would get away with it. They saw how you can be bad and actually succeed in life. They saw how you can violate all of the value system of the traditional religion and still live a good life. And they concluded that God must not have a problem with that behavior because that behavior doesn't provoke any punishment. Do you see? I mean, it's quite a logical move, right? Don't do these things or God will get you. Well, a bunch of people do these things, so therefore they think they don't become atheists. That's not what they've done. Therefore, what they say is these things must not matter to God. I must be able to do that. In other words, what my parents told me about what is right and wrong, this traditional religious value system is wrong, but they maintain their belief in God. So they said, God exists, but we can do X, Y, and Z. He's actually pleased by X, Y, and Z. I can act like this or do these things or talk like this. And it actually, it doesn't offend God. Quite the opposite. It's what God values. I mean, you can see this, can't you? Can't you? And I wonder if some of you have been there. Where you look at your life and you've made incredible moral effort to live by a certain set of religious rules. And then here's Joe, right? I don't think we have a Joe in our church, so I feel like I'm safe. Is there a Joe in the room? (laughs) This is the male form. So here's Joe the man. And he doesn't live by these rules. He sleeps with whoever he wants to sleep with. He cheats. He gives in to his anger. He indulges his pleasures, and his life is better than mine. In other words, God... See, if you don't move into kind of an agnostic direction or an atheist direction, a very powerful move is to say that behavior that we have often been told is wrong is actually okay. And that's what was going on here. Now, the second complaint... It's kind of another line that was going, another angle of thought that was going through the Israelites is this. Well, maybe God doesn't like that behavior. We don't know. But what we can say is God just doesn't care. That God's irrelevant. That the way I live and the things I think And the things that I do when nobody else knows but God doesn't even really matter to God because how many of us, to be honest, have done some really bad things that nobody knows about and life is still okay. And our families haven't been destroyed and there has been no lightning bolt to singe us and you've gotten away with it. I mean, how many people in this room last night, yesterday, this weekend, this week, you got away with something that Christianity says, traditional Christianity says, is very bad. And you slip into this way of living that at the end of the day, what God is thinking is really not immediately relevant because I can keep doing these things. I can keep acting in this way. So either one, our traditional value system is wrong and we need to change it in the name of religion. Or two, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care. I can just live like... And look, there's a lot of practicing what functional God is irrelevant people in our churches today. Now, verse th- chapter 3, verse 1. 
God responds to these two trajectories, these two attitudes, these two views by saying that he is going to address the situation in a very specific way. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this is imagery that is drawn from the practice of ancient kings going out on a procession. Um, In medieval England, it was called a progress where the king would get all of the court together and they would go and visit a province or a place. And the, and the habit was, in medieval England, the habit in, ancient, in the ancient Near East, was when a king would go and visit a province, he would send a royal messenger in advance so they could get ready and be fit for a king. Adequate arrangements had to be made. They had to prepare the roads. Um, their exam- you know, a lot of the world was talking about how Seoul, Korea prepared for the Olympics. Do you remember this? A lot of the world has talked about how Russia at times has prepared for, how you get ready for something, you change the reality so that you can have this special moment. Now, of course, to prepare for the coming of God, to prepare for the coming of the king of the universe, the preparations were spiritual, not so much physical. But at the point, the point here is Malachi is saying to them, God is going to visit and you are not ready. As innocent as you think you are, you are not ready. No matter what you think about yourself, you're not prepared for the king to arrive. Notice the second sentence of the verse. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. His appearing, it's not that it's going to be quick. It's going to be a surprise. The Lord whom you seek is going to show up and you're going to be surprised when he does. Now, there's something, there's a very small detail in this passage that I need to point out to you. And so we're going to do a bit of um, kind of Hebrew translation work for a minute. If you're bored with that stuff, hang in there. If you've got your Bible, I hope you do, because you need to actually see the words on your page to see this. The word Lord is used two times in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. It's used at the beginning of the verse and it's used at the end of the verse. The first time the word Lord looks normal. The second time the actual physical text, the font is formatted in a unique way. Somebody whose Bible does this, how is it formatted differently the second time in your Bible? It's all caps. It's or lowercase caps. Okay. What's going on here is that this word Lord is actually two different words in the Hebrew language. And by making the second one look different, it's telling you this is a different word than the first word. The first word, Lord, is the word Adonai. And it's a name for God that picks up his royal character. It, 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 it clues us in, it kind of references the fact that he's a king. It's this idea that a visiting king is coming to his country. And so God is his king and he's sending a messenger in advance who's going to announce the king is about to arrive. And when he does, he's going to be a king. He's going to dispense with justice. 
The justice the Israelites claim has been lacking. Now, the second time, at the end of the verse, there is where the word Lord is formatted in a different way. And this time, the word Lord is not a translation of Adonai. It's a translation of the Hebrew personal name for God, Yahweh. Okay? Now, what's going on here is that it's saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and Adonai... Whom you seek will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Now look, in Psalm 110, verse 1, David did the same thing. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this is a very important passage in the Old Testament. Jesus picks it up and quotes it in the New Testament as referring to himself. Here is the Lord Almighty, the Father, who is speaking of his coming and referring to the one who is going to come, who is different from him, and yet is the Lord, and yet is divine, and yet is God. This is Jesus Christ. So pulling back, the people had decided that God's standards were actually very different from the traditional moral standards they had been taught. And here God is saying, no. And not only are you wrong about my standards of behavior, you are severely underestimating my commitment to judgment based on those standards. And you are severely overestimating your state of readiness for me to send my son. Look at verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. This word endure. Who can endure the day of his coming? It's the idea that when God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, it will be a searching ordeal. And who can cope with it? Who can stand when he appears? The idea in the background here is that everyone will stand before God, the judge of the whole earth. And when that moment comes, who will be able to stand against the king of the universe? Who can mount a successful defense against the one who knows all and sees all? Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Now notice in verse 2, it feels like there's a contradiction. In verse 2, the idea was that no one can stand before the Lord. Right? And then in verse 3... There's the idea that the Lord is going to refine and purify. One is this kind of total yes or no scenario. You can't. You don't deserve it and you won't survive it. The next one is he's going to do something to you so that you can stand. He's going to purify you. He's going to refine you because and and make you so that you can actually be in God's presence. Now, what is this cleansing? It's something that Jesus... God himself, sending God himself. It's something that Jesus does. He will sit as a refiner. It's kind of a strange word. I thought a lot this week about this word sit. I mean, it kind of gives you, it evokes this image, right? 
that there's this process of considerable care and attention that the judge of the universe is going to give to you in order to make you fit. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerer, against the adulterer, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That word host, that means armies. This is the warrior king. This isn't the soft pastel king. This is the Lord with armies behind him arrayed in battle attire. It's that Lord. The Lord characterized by weapons and might. This is far from the God who demands nothing. And this is far from the impersonal force, the subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness. This is far from some formless life force surging through us. Here is the reality of a God arrayed for battle, filled with anger. Our psalm said he is slow to anger, not he never gets angry. But when he is angry, he is the Lord of hosts. This is the reality of an angry God. A God that is angry with Israel for her attitude and for her choices. They were calling for the God of justice, but he was threatening judgment on them. He said, you want the God of justice? You can't handle that. You're not ready for that. They were looking at all of those out there who were going to get it. And Malachi was saying, easy now, cowboy. You don't want this God. And then look at the very last phrase. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the problem underlying all of these attitudes and all of this logic and all of this reasoning and all of their behavior, the problem under all of that is that they do not fear God. They're not scared of God. They're not afraid of God. God doesn't terrify them. He's irrelevant to them. They don't stop to think, I shouldn't do this because God will hurt me. Because God is no longer a God who hurts anyone. They don't stop to think, I I shouldn't act like this because God's anger will be aroused against me because I'm a part of Israel, so I get a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm okay. I'm safe. And as we prepare for the return of Christ, It is so important for us to sit with these passages and to learn from Israel that we can be unprepared. There is still a temptation today to not fear God. Now, it comes through some very similar lines of thinking. We need to learn from the Israelites how to stand before God. And it's not by our moral excellence It's by an attitude of humility before God. So I want to say to you, as you prepare for Christmas, this is a very different way of preparing for Christmas. But this is what the church does. It takes us to these passages every year and say, you need to sit here to get ready to receive the birth of Christ in fresh ways into your life. And to long for His return, we need to beware of forgetting that God is a King. 
We need to beware of forgetting that he is a warrior whose anger does not come quickly, but when it comes, it is fierce. He is not a book on the shelf that you can pick up at your leisure. Heaven and earth will flee at his glance. He's the king. He will approach like a hunter at an infinite speed. And when he does, who can stand at his appearing? We need to guard ourselves from becoming so trivial, so petty, that we are incapable of feeling what terrifying truth is in this passage. So many of us, we go through so much of our day so caught up in either busyness or triviality that we lose the ability to be terrified of God. We need to cultivate that pure childlike imagination that hears scripture like this, the way a child hears his first peal of thunder. The Bible does not reveal to us the judgment of God so that we can yawn and turn the page. The wrath and anger of God is revealed to shake the unbeliever out of their stupor, to take the swagger out of the Christian step, to remove the cocky twang from the Christian's voice, to shatter our illusions that we can sin with impunity. Church of the Incarnation, friends, we need to ponder on these things. And in this season of Advent, we need to learn to tremble again. Let's pray.